After much too long of a delay, I finally got a new podcast up for the listeners of A History of Christian Theology. I'm Chad Kim, and with me this week, as always, will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. In the first 25 minutes of this podcast that we recorded some time ago, we discussed two questions uh, about our favorite Christian literature and a question about Tom's definition of justice. After answering those questions, we move into the theology of Gregory Nazianzen. Gregory Nazianzen is one of the three theologians known as the Cappadocians. We've discussed Basil of Caesarea, who is a close friend of Gregory, and the other Cappadocian is Gregory of Nyssa, whom we will get to in the next episode. Gregory Nazianzen studied philosophy and rhetoric in several places, including Athens. He tells the story of getting into a storm on one of these sea voyages to a new town to study, where he almost dies. He calls out to Jesus to save him and says that if he saves him, he will go on to serve him only. This story, somewhat reminiscent of Martin Luther's story of entering the priesthood, is Gregory's launching pad into becoming one of only three men designated by the Orthodox Church as theologian. The other two are John Chrysostom and St. Simeon, the new theologian, whom we hope to get to soon. We are looking at several of Gregory of Nazianzen's sermons or orations on the Godhead, for which he is most famous during the debates over the personhood of Jesus Christ and his relationship to the Trinity. Sorry for the delay in uploading this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Please comment on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. And please listen to us next week as we get into the theology of Gregory of Nyssa. We've had many questions on the podcast, um, and we really appreciate all of the people who have written in on our Facebook page. And our recording has been a little sporadic, and that's mostly my fault, so sorry. Um, But we're going to answer a couple questions. One of them was from Aaron Burke. He said, Tom recommended the Brothers Karamazov. What other Christian novels or whatever? what other novels would you suggest uh, every Christian should read? All right, so this is very specific. Every Christian should read. Um, you know, I think I would also definitely endorse the Brothers Karamazov. And maybe, um, maybe we can make it a little bit broader than just specifically Christian novels, but maybe novels that would benefit um, Christians specifically. Um, so we're not tied to like, you know, because there is sort of contemporary Christian literature and Brothers Karamazov would not necessarily fit into that category. You know, it's, it's written before the idea of like, a, you know, writing for specific Christian purposes for a Christian subculture. Um, so uh, do we have uh, other suggestions for, for novels that are, you know, every Christian should read? Well, for me, you know, I definitely encourage people to stick with the Russians. I think anything that by Dostoevsky, he has a number of amazing works that that uh, deal with a lot of themes, really, but he is always preoccupied with uh, the spiritual questions. He himself was uh, Eastern Orthodox, and, um, yeah, it, it's a constant wrestling that he's uh, wrestling with spiritual and religious issues. Uh, so I, I can, uh, you know, recommend Dostoevsky completely, and I think everybody should read all of his works. You start with the Brothers Karamazov, go to Crime and Punishment next. Um, uh, I'd really recommend Notes from the Underground. And also I would recommend Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy, who is also, he, he also is a Christian and is dealing with uh, very, very deeply theological themes um, and I can recommend Anna Karenina wholeheartedly, one of my favorite uh, books of all time. I, I think everybody should should read Anna Karenina. Um, and, you know, F, just an FYI, anything by C.S. Lewis that is fiction or by G.K. Chesterton, for me, carte blanche, those books are going to be amazing. Lewis and Chesterton, if you have not read G.K. Chesterton, you need to read G.K. Chesterton. He writes fiction and nonfiction. Um, I think a good place to start in his fiction work is The Man Who Was Thursday. Um, so I highly recommend that. I assume most of you listeners are familiar with Lewis's works. Um, he has a novel that I really recommend called um, Till We Have Faces, one of my favorite books. So I, I recommend all of those completely. I'm sure there's lots of other things, but that's what comes to my head, comes to the top of my head, my mind, whatever. Yeah, I would echo all of those. I've read. I actually have never read any novels by Chesterton, 
Um, but everything else that you've recommended, I've read um, and love reading um, Dostoevsky uh, and and Tolstoy. I would add. I was just look. I was looking at my bookshelf um, and looking at stuff that uh, that's really been uh, influential to me. Uh, one of them is Wendell Berry. Is a right. I don't. So I don't know if I could put this in the the put this in the every Christian should read. Um, but I think it's been really good. Like I love Jaber Crow uh, from Wendell Berry. He deals with some Christian themes. He the guy, the writer Wendell Berry is a uh, is actually Baptist. Um, I love. I really love reading Wendell Berry. Um, it's certainly not uh, of the same monumental nature as Tolstoy uh, or Dostoevsky or even uh, uh, Lewis, but I mean it's it's good. Um, the other uh, novelist that comes to mind uh, that I that I've read um, some is uh, Flannery O'Connor. Um, Flannery O'Connor is a Christian from the South. Um, some some gr- there in some cases it's gruesome, um, some very like very gory almost, uh, but but still very poignant and in her depiction of grace um, and um, just you know sort of the um, yeah it's just a very uh, very well written um, American uh, literature. And and informed by her Catholic Christian background, I think I'd have to go with uh, a little-known series called Harry Potter. Um, hey, fair enough. By the way, that's yeah. Can't deny Harry Potter. I looked over at my bookshelf and I saw the shrine I have dedicated to Harry Potter, and um, I'm going to be rereading him again soon here so I always recommend Harry Potter and Cursed Child just came out which is effectively the 8th Harry Potter and so if you have never read it this is the time you can now be the person who said I did 1 through 8 my first time reading them all the way through and you'd probably be pretty unique other than you know young people who are probably now just getting into Harry Potter um I just oh there was one other one that I was going to add. There's a book called A Severe Mercy by Sheldon Van Auken. Um, and not a novel, but oh that's right, it's not a novel. I forgot, <laughs> it's an autobiography. Dang it! All right, never mind, never mind. It's really good though. You're right. Yeah. I totally it's forgot. It's a good recommendation. Hey, can yeah. I really quickly just for the skeptics in the audience who heard Trevor say Harry Potter and perhaps are scoffing? Are you going to um, say Pullman? What's that? Are you about to mention Pullman's Dark Materials? I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, never but mind. I, no, I'm going to make piece. a defense. So just for our listeners who might be scoffing at the Harry Potter suggestion, um, uh, just so you guys know, J.K. Rowling is, in fact, a member of the Church of Scotland, a practicing member in communion of the Church of Scotland. And uh, if you go back and kind of look up some interviews, uh, you can look up interviews where she talks about C.S. Lewis as being her principal inspiration, um, and that she was very much using uh, the Chronicles of Narnia as kind of an inspirational template for what she was doing. And she is just emulating the philosophy of literature that Tolkien and Lewis laid out, this idea of, of, of communicating the deep truths of reality through a modern-day myth, so to speak. And um, if you have not read Harry Potter and are not familiar with it, uh, then it might surprise you to note that Harry is a very distinct Christ figure, um, and that is all by design. It's not accidental. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and might as well throw Tolkien in there, which is another another thing, I guess, everyone yeah. should read, which is too obvious. So I just threw out obvious... For an example, I thought when you said skeptic, I thought you literally meant like for skeptics in the audience, like atheists in the audience or something. No. Because, okay, <laughs> so then I got, so I brought up Pullman's Dark Materials because that is like supposed to be the atheist version of um, of uh, like C.S. Lewis's books, which I also have on my bookshelf and are at least worth reading. I would say that, though... Though there is no God, that's for dang sure. Um, but anyway, um, one 
one thing I'm surprised you didn't say, Chad, uh-huh. uh, which it's we our our listeners need to know because because this is an author who is much uh, much less represented. Repre- or I should say. Uh, modern Christians are much less aware of this author's works than most of the people we've mentioned. And that is Marilyn Robinson. Oh, yeah. uh, you need to read Marilyn Robinson books if you are listening to this podcast. I would start with the book Gilead. And actually, to be fair, Gilead's the only one of her works I've read. I just recently purchased uh, three of her other works. But Marilyn Robinson is a... Yeah, she's a, a Christian who... The book Gilead is actually written as a memoir uh, from the perspective of an old pastor who is dying of heart disease and is writing notes to his son uh, just on life and things of that nature. It's fictional. It's a novel. Um, but it won the Pulitzer Prize. It's a it's an outstanding piece of fiction. So everybody needs to read Marilyn Robinson. Yeah, I forgot. I have read Lila Home or Leela Home and Housekeeping as well. Um, and they're all good. Uh, they're all very good. Uh, but uh, I don't think any of them quite matches Gilead. Uh, so we have one other question, um, which that we're going to respond to. Uh, it's really long. I don't think I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, but it's from Johns Thomas. You can read it on our Facebook page. Um, he talks a lot about uh, he he. This is he's following up on a post that we did or from a podcast that we did a while ago. Talking about the nature of justice, um, and uh, t- you know, Tom used an example of a classroom and uh, whether or not you know grace or mercy is just uh, God giving someone a grade that they don't deserve, and you know, how does that fit in with a worldview of justice? Um, and he basically, it basically, it comes down to his disagreement with Tom over whether or not equity is the same as justice. Um, he says at the end, I do not see that as being just. But if you use equity as your definition of justice, you would have to accept this as just. These are merely a few thoughts. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. I'm enjoying it. So, um, but yeah, so that was, as I understood the question, it takes issue with with the ju- the definition of justice as equity. Yeah. So I actually just so you know, I cannot find the post. I've been looking the whole time we've been talking, so I can't find it. So I don't remember everything that he said. Um, but I can try to hit on a few things. Uh, that do come to mind. So just for our listeners, a reminder of the initial point I was making, there, a, a lot of people will frame the justice of God in this sense. They'll say something along these lines. They'll say, uh, everybody deserves justice. It's God's mercy that he saves a few. Um, and, and to be, you know, to be specific, this this terminology is adopted a lot by Calvinists, people who have a very strong view of predestination. And, of course, I, I work in a Calvinist community, meaning the school I teach at is largely composed of, of, of people who hold to Calvinist doctrine and who have a very strong view of, um, uh, you know, predestination. So I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but I've always had kind of, um, some reservations about the line of reasoning that they use, uh, in this, at least in this respect. Um, they'll say something like, God, we're all damned, or we all should be damned, because we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and God in his mercy selects a few to save. And I have said that's not mercy. My argument is that that is not mercy. That is injustice. And I used the classroom example, which went something like this. If I give a test and every single person fails, and they legitimately fail, then it is just for me to fail them. Um, It would also be just for me to give them an out of sorts. Like I could say, okay, everybody, you all got Fs. This probably is a bad reflection on me, so to speak. Uh, Or it doesn't even need to be that. Maybe I just am in a good mood or whatever. But I'm going to give you an opportunity to retake this new test um, or I'm going to give you an opportunity to go back and fix all your answers, and if and if you do that, then you're going to get a higher, you know, grade. As long as I give that opportunity to everyone equally, then I'm being just. I'm being fair. If, on the other hand, I'm sitting there and in the class, I look at everybody and I go, "You all failed," but I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and give four of you A's. That's not mercy. 
That's injustice. Um, and Jonathan's in, in Jonathan's email, he he took me to task on that. He brought up some good points. Um, I, I have a couple of thoughts in response. He cited an actual example of a class that he partook uh, that he took, in which the professor came in and told everybody that the girls in the class were getting A's and the boys were getting B's. Um, I don't know, remember if this was in college or or you know where exactly um, he took this class. But he then went on to say that they all took a test, they all failed, but sure enough, just as the man said, he gave all the girls A's and all the girls B, or all the guys B's, and he looked at that as a mercy. To that, all I can really say is that any discussion, by, any argument by allegory, or by analogy, I should say, is only going to be effective to the degree to which your audience uh, finds that it resonates with them. If they think the analogy holds then your analogy will work. Sadly, in this case, the analogy he gives does not resonate with me at all. I still listen to it and go, that's injustice. I mean, that's just what that is. It's wrong for that man to sit there and say, I'm giving the girls A's, I'm giving the guys B's, in spite of the fact that everybody actually got an F. That is partiality. It's injustice. Now, I understand that that, that point I just made works both ways. I gave an example, if it doesn't resonate with you, then it doesn't resonate with you. My analogy is going to fail um, because it can only work for somebody who would listen to it and go, yeah, that is what justice is or what injustice is. Um, he then brings up the fact that I define justice as equity, and I don't know that I necessarily want to define it exactly as equity per se, but I do think I have a lot of reasons for thinking that justice and equity are pretty close to the same thing, that they're two words that have very similar ranges of meanings. This, on the one hand, is actually supported in Scripture, where if you read through the book of Proverbs, you'll find that, for instance, in chapter 1, God talks about judgment, justice, equity, fairness. He makes a list of terms, and he is employing Hebrew parallelism, meaning that these are terms which are supposed to have similar ranges of meaning. He is repeating himself. Um, and it is in general, I think, how most people do use the term justice. We equate it with fairness. If, if something is owed me and they, it's not given to me, that is unfair. It is not equitable. If, 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 if there are two people in a circumstance and we both are owed the same amount and one gets more, then there's an injustice, there's an inequity. That seems to be how people tend to use the word. There might be some slight differences um, in terms of overall range of meaning, but that in general is how people use it. He goes on to give an example, um, and I can't remember it precisely, but it has something to do with, uh, I'm going to kind of create a new example, something similar. He says, imagine that your son is outside and he throws a rock through the, through the window and he breaks the window. Um, and compare or contrast that with some random boy who lives down the street. If the random boy comes and lives down the street and throws a rock through your window, you're going to expect a different kind of payment from him. You'll expect a payment, like real money. If it's your son, well, you'll discipline him or something along those lines. I think that's a fair point. It's a good point. But at the same time, I still don't think that it actually really makes the point that he wants to make because at the end of the day justice is always concerned with inter with interpersonal issues and it always factors into the nature of justice um, the relationship you have to the person this is why judges have to recuse themselves recuse themselves if they're sitting in judgment in a case where somebody they know is involved um, the way we're connected is under to people in relationship is understood to skew justice. So, if my son throws a rock through my window, it is going to affect, and rightfully so, the way I respond to him because he's my son. Him breaking my window is a different kind of thing than the neighbor boy breaking my window, and me punishing him is a different kind of thing than the neighbor boy breaking my window. I can function in regard to the neighbor boy on a purely just platform. I only want what is my fair right. And I, there are plenty of parents who do that with their kids. I've seen it happen, but it's not a it's not a preferred parenting model and it's not really because because parenting involves so much more than just being just to your kids. 
um, it involves, of course, you wanting to train them. There is this this also different this difference as well that the property has a different relationship to your son than it does to your neighbor. Your son, as your son, in a sense, kind of has a, an ownership and a, a certain kind of uh, property holding of that property. So all of those things skew justice. We all know this. This is why we make a difference between family members and friends and then those who we do not have a bias towards. So that would be my response. I think you made some really insightful points, but at the end of the day, these examples resonate with us or they don't resonate with us. And I, I totally understand if my examples didn't resonate with you, um, but it, but the example that you gave, those don't strike me as issues that make, the, that wasn't just, it just, that's the way it strikes me, so. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that answers the questions. Um, so we're going to turn now to Gregory Nazianzen's Theological Orations. So uh, in the in the original numbering, they were 29, 30, and 31, which we found out last week. Um, I just knew them as the theological orations. Um, and so now we've gotten the numbering straight. Uh, we are going to do 29, 30, and 31, uh, or the, oration, the two orations on the Son and the one oration on the Holy Spirit. Um, is what um, These are the major themes of these last orations. Um, so um, one thing that um, Gregory of Nazianzus begins with um, you know, he basically reiterates what is the standard um, position uh, of the church and what he, what essentially, you know, in a way is sort of writing orthodoxy, if you like. Um, you know, this, this Nazianzen's description of it is one of the sort of classic definitions, classic descriptions of the three persons um, who are unified in essence um, but distinct um, and, and hypostasis and personality in, um, in, in persons. Um, not in, yeah, not in personality, but in persons. Um, and so, um, yeah, so he says, in order to do proper Christology, um, you need to do, you need to first understand the Son's place within the Trinity. Um, and so he is one of this essence of, one part of this essence of God. Uh, or one, you know, one person in the essence of God. Um, and then, you know, one thing, I don't know, you know, we can, we can start by there. He does say uh, that, the, you know, there's one problem that I've always had in trying to explain the Trinity is how to understand the difference between creation and begetting. Um, so when we say that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, exactly what is this begetting that we're describing? Um, is it the it's it's certainly not the same as as an exact same as offspring because God doesn't have anybody to make the child with, um, and so it's it's not exactly the same thing as a as the way that a child is created or is born. Um, but in a sense, it's re it's related to that because we do say that Jesus is of the essence, as like a child. Um, so Gregory of Nazianzen's solution is the beginning of God must be honored by silence. Um, and there is a, um, you know, there's a there's a sort of argument for, um, you know, just as well, we don't exactly know uh, what happens here, and a lot of. Gregory, I feel like that is uh, sort of representative of some of the way in which Gregory of Nazianzen does um, the theological orations, which is this balance between um, how accurate our language can be and about what sorts of things our language can be accurate, and then about what sorts of things uh, does this language sort of fail. Um, and he wants to sort of, uh, you know, there's sort of a literalism um, and a strictness about the logic of Eunomius, of um, this sort of uh, Arian, um, who Gregory of Nazianzen has in mind. Um, and then there, you know, on the other side, who Gregory of Nazianzen maybe doesn't mention, but maybe is someone who has a complete sort of nihilism with regards to language, uh, where it, it just means nothing. Um, and uh, there's sort of, our, our language is so arbitrary that it's possible that, or that no communication is really possible. Um, because, you know, how do we have any sort of standard or agreement about our language? Um, I feel like 
basically that's the the balance that uh, Gregory of Nazianzus is trying to strike. Um, but you know, he doesn't he doesn't want the sheer cold con logical confidence of a eunomius. Um, but he also doesn't want to say uh, that our language is 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 totally. Um, um, you know, sort of unable to be understood um, from from the other side, and so it's it's so it's meaningless basically. Um, and and maybe maybe we're saying nothing about God. Um, I guess uh, Trevor, do you have any uh, any thoughts here? Just you know, going maybe straight off into this, um, you know, begotten. What is begetting? What is creating? Uh... <laughs> well, you know, there's all of the. There's a lot of the analogies we can talk about um, that have come up, such as, of course, uh, the one analogy we've used a lot is the analogy of the sun and the light, and this is because, um, you know, I think this was Tertullian, probably, or was it Origen was the first to bring that analogy up? The light? Yeah, the, the light emanating from the sun. Yeah, um, um, I mean, it's it's used in a few different places, but... Yeah, um, it's been in people we've read, but is the point, and... I mean, you know, a, I think it's actually originally a... Well, no, it would be... Theophilus uses it, um, but yeah, there's a lot of them. Justin. And, and I guess... I guess... Oh, you know what? Yeah, it actually probably has... Um, I guess technically Jewish origins uh, through um, Philo. Philo, there we go. I was like blinking. I was like Phil something. Philo. Um, yeah. So anyway, point being though is you know so there's a few ways of talking about it. You could talk about it like that, which is a way some people explain it, but that obviously isn't perfect. I think that. That analogy more describes for us how something can be eternally proceeding from something else, right? Um, and always existing when the other thing exists, though technically proceeding from. I think it's more of a it's a way of getting your head around the um, the puzzle of uh, there being no time there between when he's begotten and when. God exists. There is no time when Christ was not, and there was no time, because there was no time when the Father was not. It's like a way of getting your head around the the time aspect, but it doesn't really I don't, obviously I don't think any analogies would work, but obviously that analogy doesn't perfectly describe what's happening here with the begetting, and neither would, um and neither would any of the analogies. There's the river and the streams that we've talked about. Um, but I, I think conceptually, the analogies help you at least think of the way in which a thing um, is produced yet not caused in time in yeah. that way. And I think that's the main distinction you need to try to get a hold of. I I mean, I think that, um, you know, I believe it was Origen uh, who talked about him, like, the second person of the Trinity being produced more like a thought in someone's mind. And once again, I think this is... I think Origen actually meant it, like the word literally is like um, the reason of God. And I think he meant it literally, at least that's how it read. But I don't know if I don't know if that's exactly right, but at least it's a good analogy, I think, for what's going on, in the sense that God is essentially a thinking thing and he yeah. can't exist uh, so that means there's it's impossible for him to exist without thinking. And I think much like us, other than the times that we're sleeping, you're thinking, essentially, your brain is working. And so I think it works as a way of at least comprehending what's going on here. It's it's as if there's a whole person that is the very reasoning aspect of God. And at least that's a way of... I think it's probably, at best, an analogy. I don't know if that's literally true. 
but it's a way of thinking thinking about it. So that's yeah. the way I, that's the way I would talk about it. Um, uh, one thing I think is important for our listeners to remember, just to kind of frame this whole thing, is just a reminder: we're still plotting through all of the heretical views of Jesus in his relationship to the Trinity. I mean, we're, st you know, to a certain degree, I'm really, I mean, like, Gregory Nazianzus is, is a much better writer than most people we've read, and people really praise him and hail him as a, as a, a magnificent rhetorician, and you can see that. I'm just so tired of going through the same arguments about the same things, and I think you have to read, sometimes I'm able to read super closely, but oftentimes I can't, and I, I haven't been able to, and if I don't read closely, I'm definitely not going to be picking up the gems. Mostly, I'm just seeing the same tired old stuff. And so, you know, the big issue that's being addressed here that that is part of the question that, you know, Chad framed there is if Jesus is begotten, then he must have a beginning. That's just the way these these Arians and other kind of pro like, uh, you know, neo-Arians are framing the question. They're all saying, look, there's a lot of language in the Bible that just implies that Jesus isn't God, that he couldn't be the eternal uh, creator. And that's not the only argument. I mean, they bring up a slew of arguments, and, and he essentially, this whole, you know, through these two treatises, he's just responding to those arguments. He's just trying to give an answer. And he essentially settles on the idea that being begotten means nothing more than basically having the same nature. Like, I have the same nature as my father. I'm the same kind of thing as my father. And that time isn't a factor. That time just is not necessary for begottenness. And he brings some, I think, clever arguments to just kind of, you know, basically, he basically flips the tables on these guys and says, let's say that Jesus isn't the same thing as the Father. Let's say the Son is not the same nature as the Father. Then you have this crazy business where somebody is begetting something that isn't like himself. Um, and, and so he says, if you have an eternal Father, it actually makes more sense for him to have an eternally begotten son because he has always if because if being a father is an essential quality of the father that is if it's a quality he's always had then he has to have always had a son and the only requirement is is that the son generates from the father that in some sense he flows from or comes from the father um, and so you know, I, I know we've talked about the same issue a bunch of times. I mean, I, I can't remember, to be honest, they all blend together, most of these guys who are writing on the Trinity. I'm just ready to not talk about the Trinity any more. <laughs> well, he says, he says some things that, uh, that I think are, I mean, at least uh, they relate to some stuff that I'm interested in. Um, and I think I've, you know, I know that um, it's been used... Um, uh, well, it, we've used it a little bit, but, um, well, I'm trying to remember if I brought it up too much of this podcast, but, uh, in, uh, the 30, Oration 30, Part 13, he talks about the use of names, um, and so names is one thing that, that I'm really interested in, and the philosophy of language, and so, you know, exactly what are we saying when we say something, so he, in, 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 uh, fighting with, uh, with probably Eunomius, um, maybe Aetius, uh, he says, although in accordance with a distinction in our thoughts, we use distinct names, and that whatever is properly called by this name really is God, and what he is in nature, that he is truly called, if at least we are to hold that truth is a matter of names, but not uh, as a matter not of names, uh, but of realities. Um, and so there's always this balance between um, where does, uh, and names here uh, is uh, onoma, uh, which is just the word, what we would use for noun. So there's no real distinction uh, between a noun and a, and a proper a proper noun. Nouns and proper nouns, as we'd say in English grammar uh, now. And, you, you know, one thing that uh, that's sort of interesting to me is how he is able to say uh, that Eunomius, um, basically, he's saying that Eunomius' uh, language is breaking. Even though it's more literal, he has one word that is absolute for God, which is unbegotten. Um, 
and uh, and and so there's only one God that is unbegotten. We've just you, you know, Eunomius does. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know me as yeah. You know me as using this one word, this one absolute definition for God the Father. Um, and so, what basically Gregory's trying to do is say, well, if you know, if we un well, basically that this doesn't understand who who the Son is. Um, and even though Eunomius wants to claim that the Son is in some way God, if God is simply unbegotten, then Jesus is in no way God. And so you know me is sort of can't have it both ways. Um, yeah, that was a great point. That was a great point that he brought up. He said, "In what way is Jesus God if he's not God?" He's like, "What does that even mean?" Which for me has always been a question that I've had for Arians, um, because I've always, I mean, again, it might be unfair to categorize them this way, but I always think of Jehovah's Witnesses as kind of the modern day Arians. So, I mean, they yeah, have a view yeah. that is very similar to what Arius believed. And in my conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses or people who belong to other uh, kind of, you know, religious movements that are that hold to some uh, permutation of the Arian doctrine, I, you know, they always say Jesus is a God, he is not the God. And then I just say, well, what does that mean? And the response is usually something like this. They'll say something like, Look, you you might say that Michael Phelps is a god. Well, that's all that it needs to mean. And I go, but that's not what you see in the scripture. Like right. it is clearly making some kind of a claim of special relationship between the son and the father. And you are and basically you guys are moving back and forth across this line. You want to say god whenever it says that that he's a god whenever you have to run up against the scriptures that call him such. But then you want to move back across the line and really minimize the significance of that term. Because yeah. it's clear in John 1, 1, when he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that he's making some kind of a metaphysical claim, like some kind of a claim about being. He's not making a claim about how impressive Jesus was and using hyperbole to describe him. That's clearly not what's going on. And so what could that word even mean? Um, Gregory says, like, what do you mean by it? Because it can't. It's at this point, the word just loses its meaning when you start when you start applying it to things that aren't God. Yeah, and it's it's just sort of interesting because I think that the Eunomians would claim that they're the ones that have the best use of language um, because they're saying, no, we're telling you exactly what God is. Um, yeah. And and then they would press against Gregory and say, okay, well, what do you say uh, God is? And Gregory says. Uh, that um, you know that actually his definition, but it is the uh, let's see. He says um, I should myself have been frightened with your distinction. Um, let's see. It state a third and a true one, namely that the Father is not a name either of an essence or of an action, but it is the name of the relation in which the Father stands to the Son and the Son to the Father. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, so for us as with these. Uh, names make known a genuine and intimate relation. Uh, so in the case before us too, they denote an identity of nature between him that is begotten and him that begets. Um, so it's it's sort of inter I just think that that's interesting that he comes up with a different way to define this, and part of what he's able to preserve in his definition uh, is the uh, the the sort of unknowability of God and God's essence. Um, so you can't define and there is not one perfect name, because the idea of a name was that it so picks out something that it can pick out its beginning and its end, um, and it can sort of contain um, the thing in which it denotes. Um, and so I think what Gregory is trying to say is, well, my definition of God picks out precisely God's relation, but it, it, is, a, it is a thing that divides and tries to pick out something that is essentially indivisible. Um, and so, you know, so there's sort of this cool feature of his definition um, such that it preserves for God this sort of unknowability and indivisibility um, while also being able to say something uh, precise, at least precise enough to say um, that God is God in his relation to the Son um, and then the Son's relationship to the Holy Spirit. Um, and then we're able to know who God is through the presence of the Son um, as the Son is is God manifest to us in the flesh, you know. So there is there is a sort of a a chain that that goes down, but 
but it still preserves some some mystery uh, in in the uh, you know in God's essence. I think clearly though, his his silence says a lot on the issue as well because as Tom brought up, you know, he kind of does uh, just say, well, you know, they need to be of the same nature to be begotten. But there's, there's like, there is a weird thing here, right, where the the relationship is somehow really unique in such a way that literally only Christ has it. He's still God, and yet it's it can't be the same as literally just having the same nature merely. There's some sort of relationship because, you know, we don't just point it to completely unrelated people and say, oh, well, you guys have the same nature, so you're begotten from this person. Of course, there's like, there's something going on here, but he brings up this point about we can only use essentially the names that are revealed to us yeah. um, to refer to the persons. And, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I couldn't recollect him saying this, and I don't know why he didn't say something like this, but say something to the effect of, you know, we can only use the words to describe the relationships revealed to us by Scripture and maybe, you know, from there say what he thinks makes the most sense, um, but instead he just is silent on the issue, but I don't know. One thing I think was really clever, a really clever, I mean, and that's one of the things that I can give props to Gregory for, he makes some clever arguments. Some of them are not so clever. I mean, I definitely came across stuff where I'm like, that's that's specious reasoning. But I love this. When he was addressing the unbegotten, uh, the notion that God is defined as unbegotten, um, he, he says this. He says, but suppose that being unbegotten is a property of God alone. What of Adam? Was he not alone the direct creature of God? Right? So... He points out that these guys are so proud of themselves for having discovered this word that is distinct for God, unbegotten. That is the thing that only God has, and it, it captures him perfectly. And I, I really feel like he just blows that whole thing up when he says, what about Adam? Adam's unbegotten. Right. Does that make Adam not God? Because Adam's not begotten. He's created, but not begotten. And which does double service, because... It really highlights, number one, the fact that the notion of being, quote, unbegotten is insufficient. It, it's not, it's neither necessary, or sorry, it's not sufficient. Not, it is necessary. Or, well, I know it's not necessary if the word is begotten. So it's neither necessary nor sufficient yeah. for, um, as, a def, as a part of the definition of God. But it doesn't apply to him alone either. And it highlights the difference between begottenness and creation, because Adam is not begotten, but is created. And the son, who is not created, and even the Arians felt uncomfortable saying created. I mean, they would say it, but they preferred begotten, because that's the language the scripture used, uses. It's, you know, they would say that creation and begottenness are similar because it both speaks of beginning. And Gregory is sitting here saying, no, Adam was created, not begotten. Right, and so so it's not a quality that only God has. Yeah. Um. You know, I, one one thing that I was thinking a little bit about uh, that Tom brought up uh, a while ago was he wanted to. Re we read uh, on the Holy Spirit from Basil of Caesarea, hoping to get some more. Um, discussion of what exactly the Holy Spirit is, maybe, or how the fathers viewed the Spirit. Um, and <laughs> I, I don't know, I'd be curious, did you find any helpfulness in the definition of what the Spirit was uh, in Gregory? Because i got to say, he calls him a person. Um, yeah. In a word, there's nothing which present a standing point to my mind. Uh, wait, uh, no, wait, that's not the one I was looking for. Um you know, he, he competed, or he repeats that. Uh, you know, if the, that there has to be a time, there cannot be a time when the sun was not, or when the spirit was not. 
they're all there. They're all part of the Godhead. Um, but exactly what the spirit is is not was not clear to me. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I could, you know, I I gave what I thought was Basil Basil's definition of the spirit um, in in the on the Holy Spirit episode, but. I didn't think that this was actually all that helpful in the Holy Spirit, except for saying, no, he must be part of the Trinity, or, well, the Spirit, whatever it is, must be part of the Trinity and is a person. Yeah, I was pretty disappointed. I know why I know why Christ gets so much attention, but, man, the Holy Spirit really is the forgotten person of the Trinity um, in so many ways. And I was so curious because of all the talk about the Father and the Son, I, I was starting to... I was really getting, like, a diphyistic vibe until the, until the, you know, the fifth theological oration, because I was going, man, where, where even is the Holy Spirit? But then at the end, it's like, he puts the Holy Spirit, um, you know, as equal right at the beginning, in the sense that the Holy Spirit, there's also never a time when he was not similar with the Son and the Father, calls him a person, but then says this little weird thing about um, the difference between the Son and the Spirit being primarily of manifest manifestation. Yeah. And, but then calls him a different person? Why wouldn't the difference then be the personness? I I don't know. It was, I found it, Bewildering and unhelpful as to what the spirit, what the, what is the difference between the spirit and everyone else? Like it was super well, unhelpful. He kind of struggles with the difference between personhood anyway. I mean, he makes the terminology, but it's not like, I mean, he gets very confusing when he starts talking about the will of God and the will. I mean, because what we typically we typically think of persons people individually as having their own will, right? And yet he conflates this idea with three different persons, um, which he acknowledges, but he but he wants to, of course, make will singular, which I understand. I mean that we like this is this is the difficulty we have in trying to skirt around the orthodox definition. Which is why at the end of the day, and this would be I think super intellectually unsatisfying to a lot of people at the end of the day, it seems that Gregory mostly just defaults to it's a mystery and we need to embrace it by faith. Like, he's, mm-hmm. he, he, he's essentially saying, look, we have the arguments, but the arguments only take us so far. We know that there, that there are three in one. We know that the Son is begotten of the Father and the Spirit proceeds, which I might be wrong, correct me, but it sounded like he was saying the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. So it's like there's this, like, kind of step transition down. And then, you know, he makes arguments for those basic notions. But anything beyond that, he just kind of chalks it up to mystery and argues for the fact that we as Christians need to feel really comfortable embracing mystery and not insisting on having answers to all the questions. It's almost like he wears it as a badge of pride, kind of saying, look, the problem with these heretics is they're refusing to acknowledge mystery. They're insisting on coming up with with a an explanation that is completely coherent and rational, which I'm somewhat sympathetic to that argument. I mean, if you're going to speak of the mystery of God, there's going to be mystery. Like, if you can fully explain the God that you worship, that clearly is going to... You have to at least stop and say, we know that we're missing some stuff, because... For a finite being to comprehend an infinite being is is to some degree absurd, and right. so I think you could maybe make the argument that it's a knock on these rationalizing religions or these rationalizing movements that they have a like a fully coherent view because because he what he's saying is look the scriptures say this we believe what the scripture says by faith and that's it and we need to recognize that there's mystery involved in this I think that's a I think it's fair. It's unsatisfying probably to a lot of people, but... It's a virtue, though, of the Greek Orthodox Church still to this day. And it's, sound, the, you know, the way he, he talks about that, 
sounds like that to me. It reminded me of that. I mean, they often... I once heard a Catholic and an Orthodox person kind of debating, and that was their... That was the big beef the Orthodox person had with the 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 uh, Catholic person. They were like, "Look, why do you find the need to define everything to death? Like, so exactly, like there's mystery, and and we're just really comfortable with that. And it's now part of our tradition. But it seems like it's something he's definitely very comfortable with, Gregory. That is, but yeah. Well, I don't have much more to add. We've been on here for a little while. Um, uh, for sure. I don't know what else you guys want. Tom? Yeah. Yeah, I do have one thing. Especially, we've actually only talked on this for a half hour. So, but. Yeah. But I, I one thing I would say that I, that struck me, and and Chad, this is to a point that you made earlier, um, referencing what Gregory wrote about names when he's yeah. making a distinction between words that we call God and what he identifies as. Basically, words that call out the essence and then words that are naming conventions, like you talked about the proper names. He's kind of bringing in like a uh, – he's kind of acknowledging certain elements that a nominalist would would, uh, yeah. would describe to. And so for our listeners, there's a long-standing debate amongst philosophers about the nature of universals, that is, qualities that, that lots of things partake of. So – um, blueness, for instance, lots of things are blue. So there's this there's this idea of blueness, and Plato and Aristotle have different takes on what blueness is and how it is that something becomes blue or is blue. And then part of this philosophy is the idea that pretty much everything out there has an essence. That is, it has something that makes it uniquely itself, or not uniquely, but that categorizes it and qualifies it. I'm a human being. There are things that make a human being a human being as opposed to a dog or a cat. And those attributes or qualities, the ones that make me human are essential to me. If you take them away, I stop being human. And there's lots of debate about what all that is. Well, nominalism came around, I believe, in the 15th century. I, I, it probably has some predecessors, but William of Ockham is the guy who people often credit with being kind of the 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 forefather of nominalism, the founder of nominalism, where he basically says that whole debate is stupid and pointless, that all that we're doing is naming conventions. Like we're using words, um, and these words kind of carry about in our minds the, these certain ideas, but it's just words. The words themselves don't have any tying to reality. He essentially says, look, there is no true universal out there in the world like Plato and Aristotle said. And so, don't get me wrong, Gregory doesn't ascribe to that view, but I think it's very interesting that he makes the sharp distinction. He refers to the word God as a naming convention, which I just found really interesting, um, because I don't because that's not how people have traditionally used the word God. They, they use the term God as, as, a, as a term that carries in it, kind of bundled up in its notion, certain characteristics that a being has. And if the being doesn't have those characteristics, he's not God. And so Godness is a thing out there. That's the way Plato and Aristotle would say it. And he basically says it's just a word that we use. And so he says we need to learn to distinguish between when we're talking about certain qualities that a being has versus the names that we use to describe them. And I just I found it fascinating. He didn't go very far with it, but I just thought it was interesting to see that pop up in this in this piece. Yeah, it was difficult for me to decide exactly where he wanted to fall on the debate though, and I felt like it, and that was like sometimes sometimes I thought he wanted to say well we do actually know something like it's a little bit more of a universal but what is it that the universal picks out um, and at versus like does it actually pick out God and God's essence no it picks out God and God's relation um, so it's still a kind of I mean it's a kind of nominalism because there is it's a convention about how we understand the essence or something, uh, but it's not really about God and God's essence. So he was—I felt like he was kind of doing a dance, and he because he wanted to, to he wanted to say that the Eunomians were just pure nominalists, like that there was no uh, because because they were pure nominalists, them calling God Jesus God or the Son God and God the Father God, that word was had eventually become vacuous. Um, is what what he wanted to say to them, even though they sort of imagine themselves 
uh, as sort of perfect universalists. No, we have the absolute one name for God and this one quality that this God that God has that makes God God. Um, and so it seems like they think they've got a tighter grasp on things, and he wants to say, no, you don't. But then in his in his presentation of sort of a positive reply, so what is it that God picks out? You know, you imagine the Anomian saying, um, and he's kind of dancing around a little. Well, it's not God's essence, it's not God's action, it's this relation thing. Um, and so it, you are kind of a convention, and I'm recognizing that this is kind of a convention because we know that God can't be defined. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is, I feel like he's kind of going, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's often hard to see what his point that he's ultimate, like the overall view that he's espousing. I mean, it's hard to see where he's going with it all. I'm pretty sure I brought this up last recording about Grave Nunzianzen as well, but I, uh, I'm probably mistaken. It may have been, I can't quite remember, but... So if someone's already heard this, and I already said it, but um, he kind of does actually react to Plato when it comes to names, because Aristotle on names would say names are conventional, but if we're taking God as a property, even then he's sort of reacting to Plato in the sense that for Aristotle, the universals exist, but only in things as they are predicated. If there were no things, there'd be no universals, whereas... Obviously, Plato thinks the universal exists independently, and things participate in that yeah. universal. So, um, so if it, it's kind of weird because he's Greek, but I've actually found it very, yeah, a little like more reactionary to Plato than just completely in line with Plato, which is not what you'd I think expect, but. Even though he does embrace certain aspects of the Platonic of course. philosophy, yeah. I mean, he he, see, he he seems to acknowledge a, um, um, a, a a gradation of existence in a sense, and yeah. uh, also yeah, I mean, so he he certainly embraces a lot of Platonic norms. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a way in which truly, I know, and this is well, now we I don't want to get way too in philosophy, but yeah, there's a way in which. You know, reading Aristotle really is reading a, a critique of Plato, but not a complete, like, throw out of Plato. So there's a way in which even when you uh, embrace Aristotle, you embrace, of course, obviously, parts of Plato. I mean, it's just... And well, so... Because so, there's room, I think. There's room in Aristotle to embrace Plato. So. And, I mean, in the various stages of Platonism to this point, there is a there is a an attempt of the philosophers to bring them together. I mean, there are still schools, but then there are like the in many ways the Neoplatonist school was also also sort of smuggling in elements of Stoicism and Aristotelianism. I mean, it's not you know as pure as you know read by uh, read orig- or written originally by. Uh, Plato, right? So there's, yeah. you know, there, you know, there's no doubt. I, I, I would have no doubt that Gregory Nazianzen has read Aristotle too, um, and is, yeah. you know, there, is not thinking to himself, um, okay, this is uh, Aristotle. I'm, a, you know, I'm a pure Platonist. I'm against Aristotle, right. um, and so, you know, I need to take the Platonist view through and through. I imagine there's some kind of the the lines being defined oh well or just sort of like how can we bring these all together and make it one more co- more cohesive system and keep the things that are good from Aristotle and, and uh, or we'll keep the things that are good from Plato and change what we need to to fit uh, you know the things that were good from Aristotle. I actually think it's one of the coolest things about these Christian writers is because of that idea of like keeping the kernel of truth. I think that was in Origin of like. You know, or no, it was Justin Martyr, wasn't it? Yeah. He said, yeah, basically, you know, sure, we, we do have the only true philosophy, but let's sift through and keep every negative truth. I thought it made just really good objective philosophy in a lot of ways because as much as it is um, not objective since it's biased by Christian revelation and theology, there's a lot of ways in which they can step outside the debate and merge and... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if anyone's ever made this argument, but I think it'd be interesting if someone, you know, studied it more and maybe argued that the Christian philosophers were doing, you know, maybe 
better metaphysics or better epistemology. I don't know. Anyway. All right. Well, um, next week I think we're supposed to do The Life of Moses the life. By, by Gregory Nista. Uh, I sent you the – I sent it to you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Next week we will be looking at the great theological allegory of Gregory of Nyssa on the life of Moses.